Okay, so um, the first thing is the title sounds very genetic, and I should, I think, reassure you at the beginning that I'm not one of these people. I'm not a geneticist. I've never, I've never found a gene. I think the whole undertaking is really quite strange. I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm much more interested in how genes affect how the brain functions, and in turn, how they contribute to the brain going wrong in illnesses such as bipolar disorder. So I'm gonna give you what I hope is a completely non-technical introduction to genetics and how they affect in the brain. I see a number of my colleagues who are going to be rather bored and embarrassed by my simplifications, but I hope I'm gonna go for a sort of a, a, a non-technical presentation. And if you obviously want to ask me more detailed questions at the end, I'll be happy to try and answer them. So before we uh, get into the kind of the, the nitty gritty of the lecture, I thought I'd have a couple of slides just to summarize what my view of bipolar is, bipolar disorder is, in case of those of you who are not aware of uh, the, the, the details of the condition before moving on to the genetics. So of course, bipolar disorder is characterized by swings of mood that go beyond, at both extremes, the levels that are part of normal life, the normal ups and downs of mood. Uh, and they, they can go, if you like, pathologically elevated into hypomania and mania, and there are particular definitions for those categories, but essentially they are happiness that's beyond what's good for you and leads people into trouble as a result of how they're feeling. And then at the other end of the mood, through uh, various depths of depression, again, below, beyond the normal lows of mood that we all experience. Now, we have two Bibles in psychiatry that tell us what the rules are for diagnosing these conditions. There's the American one called the DSM-4 and the World Health Organization's one's called the ICD-10. And these list in much more detail than I've just summarized for you. What are the criteria by which you both diagnose bipolar disorder and then in turn, if you wish, subclassify it? Okay. And the only reason for bringing that up at this stage is that research into bipolar disorder is very much constrained by those criteria. So whatever we think of them, and of course, to some extent, like all criteria, they're rather arbitrary, we're sort of forced to work within those limits. And it's a, one of, I think, the goals of genetics is to understand disorders better so we can go beyond these sort of rather arbitrary but reliable definitions of disorders like bipolar disorder. It affects about one in 100 people, maybe a bit more than that, depending on what, exactly how one draws the categories, with both sexes equally affected. The usual onset of first presentation to people like myself is in the early 20s, although you can often find the roots of the illness go back a number of years before that. It's a very variable condition. Uh, there are certain, certainly the people with bipolar disorder who manage, to, who manage their illness very well. They lead very productive and successful lives uh, with sort of in, in impairment of their symptoms only from time to time. And at the other extreme, unfortunately, there are people whose illness is so severe and so uncontrollable that really it's very difficult to leave anything, anything like a normal life. It also varies in the rate at which these cycles from one extreme of mood to happen and how long people spend in each of the various mood states before switching to the next one. It often coexists with other disorders. So although we tend to think of bipolar disorder as this discrete entity, in the real world, about half the patients who meet the criteria for bipolar disorder also meet the criteria for at least one other psychiatric disorder, and anxiety disorders and OCD are particularly common. There's also quite a high prevalence of, of abuse of substances. There are a range of treatments that can, to some extent, some considerable extent, in fact, improve the course of the illness. There are mood stabilizers that help people prevent going both to the up and the down swings of the mood, and a particular drug uh, is lithium, as long as a number of alternatives. And there are different drugs which can then treat the depressive phase and can treat the manic phase. I think it's fair to say that at the moment, the treatment of bipolar disorder is more pharmacological than it is psychological. But I think belatedly, we're realizing that psychological treatments can be very helpful too, uh, particularly in preventing relapse, as well as helping people cope with the symptoms when, as and when they happen. But the treatments at the moment are very much uh, if you like, they're, they're, they're papering over the cracks. They're not treatments that really get at the underlying biology of the illness. And again, that's partly because we don't know what that biology is. And the real, one of the real advantages of genetics is we think that once you understand genes, you understand the biology, you can help treat the illness better. Okay, just before moving on, I mentioned that we have bipolar disorder as a particular discrete category, but in the real world, it isn't like that. It's, psychiatric disorders aren't separate categories. They're, they're spectra which merge into each other, and bipolar disorder can merge into schizophrenia. It can merge into extremes of personality traits and various other ways in which this slide tries to capture that. But really, for the purposes of this talk, one has to treat bipolar disorder as if it was a single entity. And the studies I'm going to tell you about have really compared, if you like, textbook cases of bipolar disorder nearly always with healthy control subjects. So the questions I want to try and answer in, in this lecture are really a series of questions about how we know bi genes are involved in bipolar disorder. Why is it worth finding them? How do you find them? And then what has been found? What do the genes do and how do they affect the risk of bipolar disorder? 
and then some slightly broader questions about what does it mean to say that something is a gene for bipolar disorder and what are the implications of the genetic knowledge and what can we use it for in the future. So first of all, how do we know genes are important in bipolar disorder? Well, we first of all know that bipolar disorder and related conditions run to some extent in families, so your risk of getting the illness is considerably increased if you have a first-degree relative or more relatives with the condition. And twin studies essentially can allow us to show that that familial clustering of the condition is, is primarily due to the fact that families share their genes, not that they share environments. Okay, and I won't go into how, how twin studies tell us that, but I think beyond reasonable doubt, it shows that bipolar disorder has this strong genetic component. And one of the simplest metrics for measuring how genetic something is is this term called heritability. And it essentially just means that in the population as a whole, roughly how much of the risk of bipolar disorder is in our genes collectively, as opposed to essentially the environment. Okay? And a heritability figure of about 85% means what it says. It means that the large majority of bipolar disorder appears in some way to come from our, our genomes, from our genes. It doesn't tell us at all how many genes there are or how they work. It doesn't mean that everybody with bipolar disorder is 85% in their genes. There's all sorts of variability. But it gives us, a, really, I think, beyond any reasonable doubt, the evidence that there are going to be genes important in this condition. And conversely, without knowing what the genes are, we're unlikely to really understand a condition because so much of it is about our genes. Okay, so that's how we know, it's in, how we know there are them. Then why bother finding genes for illnesses at all? Well, in medicine generally, uh, through history, we start off with describing a condition, a group of symptoms or behaviors or signs that patients have that doctors recognize because it seems to predict something that's going to happen to those people or treatments. And in, in, in psychiatry, in bipolar disorder, is really still stuck at the top box. We have this descriptive category. We have various speculative hypotheses about what the cause of the illness is and what the nature of the illness is in terms of the brain, for example. But to make progress, generally in medicine, one of two things has to happen. You either have to go down the left-hand side of, the, of, of this slide and discover the pathology of the condition, if you like, its biology. So most cancers are defined by what they look like down a microscope to a pathologist, as, for example, is Alzheimer's disease, type, two, no, type 1 diabetes is defined by some biological parameter of glucose tolerance, for example. Or you need to discover the genes which underlie the disorder, the causative gene for the condition. So cystic fibrosis, for example, the gene for that condition is well understood, the mutations in that gene are understood, and those are beginning to lead to treatments based on correcting the gene deficit. And either one of those often then helps you discover the other, and the two between you then help you understand the disorder in a biomedical sense. As I alluded to earlier, that in general allows you to do one of three things, at least in theory. You can maybe test for the condition using that biological or genetic marker that you've discovered. It may lead you to reclassify the disorder if it turns out that the genes or the biology don't carve nature at her joints, as, as they say, in the way that the uh, de descriptive definition does. And thirdly, perhaps most importantly, the hope uh, that it's going to lead to better treatments based more on curing the underlying genetic or biological abnormality. Okay, now I'm assuming that many of you, it's a while since you did your biology A-level, if you ever did it, and genetics may seem a little bit rusty, so I've just got a few slides, which is kind of an introduction, of, you know, a 101 for genetics. Those of you who do understand it can, can switch off for a few minutes and check your blackberries. Okay, so what are the essential points about genetics that we need to know to sort of understand what might be going wrong in bipolar disorder? We're a reminder that our genes are spread across our 23 pairs of chromosomes. We have one from mum and one from dad, and there are 23 different chromosomes like that in the nucleus of every cell of every body. They're made of DNA, coiled up into the famous Watson and Crick double helix, which I'll show you in a second. And a gene is defined as essentially a length of DNA, which is an instruction written in the genetic code to make a protein, and the proteins are the building blocks of the bodies. So genes are the recipes or the instructions to make proteins. Our genetic code in total has three billion letters or bases in it. That's the, our total genome together. And at each point of those three billion letters along the code, there are four different letters that can take the place, A, C, G, or T. And essentially, our genes are simply sequences of these letters that tell our bodies what amino acids to put into which proteins encoded by that gene. Now, not all our genes are on at one time, and what makes a brain cell different from a liver cell and an adult brain different from a child's brain is that we express a different repertoire of these genes. And so the, the particular combination of genes and amounts of genes that we make at any one time really set the functioning of our tissues or organs like the brain. And abnormalities in how those genes are expressed and regulated turns out to be very important in diseases like bipolar disorder. So I'll come back to that in a, a bit later on. 
And when we talk about a gene causing a disease, you can think of it, if you like, as a spelling mistake in the genetic code. If a gene is a recipe to make a protein, it's a spelling mistake, okay? And depending on what the spelling mistake is, it either completely messes up the recipe you're making or it just slightly affects it. And gene mutations are like that. They can be anything from very subtle effects through to very deleterious effects. Just to visualize that, if these are our chromosomes here, at higher magnification, if you unwind a chromosome, you can see the double-stranded, the DNA here, which is the, uh, the, the Watson and Crick helix. Don't worry about figure three at the moment. And then at, at highest resolution four, as you go along the double helix, here are the, four, the one of the four bases that occurs at each given point. And the sequence of the exact sequence of the AUCs, Gs, and Ts is the genetic code. It tells you what is being made at that place on the DNA. Okay, now as for the last 10 years, we have unraveled the genome. So we know within reason every single base in the human genome. And that allows you both to understand what's normal and what isn't normal in association with the disease. I think this is the worst slide. After this, it begins to get better. So the genetic code works in that each three consecutive letters specifies what amino acid, what chemical is to be made by that gene. So each three bases tells you what amino acid to make. And the reason we're all different genetically is every now and then, probably about every 1,000 or 10,000 bases, some of us are different. So some of us might have a C at this point, whereas the rest of us have got a G. Now, that may or may not matter. It's, there's a lot of all sorts of variation that doesn't matter at all. But cumulatively and at individual points, it's these differences called SNPs or single nuclear polymorphisms that make us different, both within the normal range, but also it's differences like that that can mean genes are risks for disorders like bipolar disorder, and I'll show you examples of that in a moment. Okay. And the final detail to remind you is because we have two copies of each gene, we have a pair of chromosomes, one from mum and one from dad, at, at a given point in your genome, you can have both of your bases being the same. In other words, you've inherited the same gene from mum and dad, or you can have a difference, where one, you've got a different version from mum and a different version from dad. And sometimes that can match as well when we're thinking about how genes are risks for disorders. Finally, how does the gene get turned into the protein? I mentioned that genes can be thought of like instructions to make proteins. And if we now sort of cartoon DNA a little bit, so if you imagine this is a gene within, within the rectangle is a gene, a gene for making anything you like. It doesn't really matter, any protein in the body, they're all basically the same. And when you actually look at a gene in more detail, within the gene there are different regions. There are regions which I've shown here in blue that are the bits that actually tell what protein that gene is due to make, the so-called coding parts of the gene. But in between are bits of gene that don't have any information of that kind. They're there for different reasons. But when you make the protein, you essentially chop out the bits in black. And so the bits that make the protein then get lined up together to make the final protein. So it's, if you like, a halfway house between the gene and the protein. What's, what's now apparent is that most genes, one gene doesn't make one protein. If you see this gene where you have four building, protein building blocks, you can use any one, two, three, or four of those to make the final protein. And I've shown here two examples. You can make a protein that's the full length of the gene with all the four blocks, or you could miss out block three and make a shorter, shorter protein. Okay? And for many genes, you can make dozens of different variants of a protein from a single gene. And it turns out that this process, sometimes called um, splicing, uh, alternative transcripts and alternative proteins is quite important for bipolar disorder. So for one of the genes I'm going to show you in bipolar disorder, the problem seems to be the way in which the expression of the gene is regulated and which the building blocks are used and which are not used. Okay. So just to summarize what I've just said there, variants, these, these genetic differences or polymorphisms that occur in everybody's genes every now and then don't just have to occur within the bits of the gene that make protein. They can occur within these black bits, and I've shown some examples there with these red asterisks, so where there might be a genetic difference that matters, even though it's not in the bit of the gene that makes a protein. And the reason it matters is because it regulates that process on the previous slide. It can regulate how many of these different versions of the protein are made from each gene. And so that turns out to be perhaps more functionally important than we, we had realized before. Okay. Okay, end of primer on genetics. Um, I won't ask you questions about it, because I'm sure you've, uh, I've lost you already. But it doesn't matter too much. I'll come back to the important points later as I explain the genes themselves to you. So how do people go about finding genes for bipolar disorder, indeed genes for any other condition? Well, essentially, you just compare the genomes of the groups you're interested in. So a group of people with bipolar disorder with control subjects. 
you can either control, you can either compare mem affected members within a family with unaffected members of that family, or you can compare a group of people with bipolar disorder with a group of otherwise matched people without bipolar disorder. And you're looking, as I mentioned earlier, for these SNPs, these particular points in the genome, which differ between the two groups. Okay? So you might find there's a particular polymorphism which is seen in 70% of healthy people, but it's only seen in 20% of people with bipolar disorder. That difference might be statistically significant, and then you'd say variation at that point is one of the genetic differences which may be putting those people at risk of bipolar disorder. Now, this is, this is essentially simplifying extremely complicated technical and statistical exercise, which involves uh, now tens of thousands of people in the big studies looking at hundreds of thousands of genetic variants using very sophisticated molecular and statistical approaches. It's been, it's been likened as not just a needle in a haystack, but looking for a needle in a haystack of needles. Uh, and I think it's, it's testament to the power of statistics and computing now that despite that challenge, a number of genes have been found. Okay, so one of the key slides. So having said all that preamble, what are the genes for bipolar disorder? Now this slide could either have three genes on it, which is what I put, or it could have 33 if you allowed genes where the evidence is less conclusive to be put on the slide. But I'm just gonna stick for the rest of this talk on the three genes which, which pass the, the most robust criteria for being something being considered to be a gene for bipolar disorder, okay? And there are three genes. One's called CACNA1C, one's called ANC3, and one's called ODZ4. Um, and I put their names next to them, but we don't need to worry too much about the names. But these are the three genes which I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk, particularly the first two, okay? But I say, if, you've, if, if you're interested in the field or you've done any other reading, you will certainly come across other genes for bipolar disorder. And I'm not saying they're not right. I'm just focusing on these three in the, in the interest of time. Okay. So what's different about these genes in bipolar disorder? And as I mentioned earlier, they really come down to the, 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 the sense in which they're different is that the form of the gene that puts people at risk of bipolar disorder has genetic differences in these black parts of the gene which affect how the gene is regulated, and so they affect when, where, and how much of the different proteins that the genes make are expressed in the brain. So they're affecting the brain's function by these fairly subtle changes in their regulation and their, and their expression in the brain. And I'll show you some evidence for that, and then downstream, so what does that matter? What's the evidence this has any effect on brain function and then on disease? Before I do that, just a quick sentence on what is known about the function of these genes, and I have to say not very much, so it's possible we, haven't got, we, we still haven't stumbled across the right areas to be studying. But what we do know is that the first gene, CACNA1C, is expressed in genes, and it makes this thing called a calcium channel, which affects how calcium can flow in and out of nerve cells and in and out of compartments within nerve cells, which really control their excitability and their, for example, many important functions like release of transmitters. And it's thought that what CACNA1C is really doing is perhaps setting the tone or the excitability of certain nerve cell populations within the brain. As an aside, there was already some evidence that calcium channel blocking drugs, drugs which are usually used to treat hypertension, may have some role in the treatment of bipolar disorder. And it may not be a coincidence that it turns out that the target of those drugs is indeed a risk factor for the illness itself. ANC3 is also involved in transmission of the nerve impulse, but particularly in how the, the circuitry develops in the brain and then responds to environmental events, so-called plasticity. So it's a gene that seems to regulate the brain's ability to respond to environmental challenges. And then finally, ODZ4, which least is known, seems to be a, a gene where the protein sits on the outside of the nerve cells and affect how nerve cells adhere to each other and then how they can migrate through the brain during development to take up their final position. And the position that a nerve cell takes up is obviously critical because it determines what connections it can make and therefore how it can function within the final brain. So, so what I want to do now is, is, is give you some examples of studies that have, have, have looked to see what's different in the brains of people with bipolar disorder and then, what's, and how, do the, then how do the genes affect the brain? because they're, they're two slightly different questions. One is about disease, one is about what, what is different about the brain in people with the illness. But these risk genes can have their effects even in people without the illness because of simply the way they're setting the, the tone of brain function. So I want to show you a range of different examples of that kind. So first of all, what about brain structure? 
And if you, and a number of studies have now used MRI imaging, brain imaging in living subjects of a large groups of people with bipolar disorder and control subjects, and have then put all the studies together and done meta-analyses and tried to get a big overall picture about what, if anything, is different about the size or shape or proportions of brains with people with bipolar disorder. And there's, there's a couple of areas where the changes seem to be concentrated. Uh, this, 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 um, um, this is unhelpfully got this blue grid over the top of it. Essentially, this is a picture of, the, of a brain that's been bisected down the middle. So we look at the, the, the sort of left-hand surface of the, the left, or the medial surface of the left hemisphere of the brain. And this is the front here, and this is the back here. And the area in bright yellow is the area that is most affected in bipolar disorder and not in schizophrenia. So it's a bipolar disorder-specific area. And it's, it's smaller, and it's an area called the anterior cingulate cortex. And that, more than any other area, seems to be the bit that is affected in bipolar disorder in terms of just size of this part of the brain. And this is a different view of that, where now we look at the outside surface of the brain with a little triangle cut out. So again, you can look into the middle and find this region, the anterior cingulate. Now, that's interesting that that seems to be where a lot of the action in bipolar disorder is happening in terms of the brain, because it's an area that both anatomically and functionally seems to connect motivation, mood, and, and movement. So an area of the brain which seems to be important for the very things that go awry in bipolar disorder turns out to be the area that is structurally distinct. But we can, know it, we can not only measure brain structure using imaging, you can measure brain function. So you can use similar imaging techniques, not to say, what well, is the brain bigger or smaller, but simply to ask the question, is the brain working differently in the groups I'm comparing? And this is a study, in fact, uh, reported by my daughter who's sitting there when she was 11. She, she did me this card. I can't resist showing it. I'd obviously been showing her some brain scans. And she very perceptively divided my brain up into the three or four things that it's good for. And um, I, I, as she was here today, I couldn't resist embarrassing her. So anyway, so more seriously, this is exactly the kind of study which many people make a living doing. So you'll put people into a scanner, and you'll get them to do something, and you see which parts of their brain light up. And in the present context, you can say, what's different in people with and without the risk form of the disease gene or with or without bipolar disorder? So I'll come back to some imaging studies in a moment. But as well as looking at the brain in imaging, you can drill down into the brain, literally, in post-mortem studies and look down the microscope and say, OK, is there anything different that I can see in terms of the brain structure itself, microscopically? And so people have tended to focus on the areas of the brain that the imaging studies have said might be different. So again, this is a different view of the anterior cingulate cortex that I showed you on the previous slide. This area in red is the same part of the brain, and this is showing, again, the side. Look at the middle side, and this view is simply cutting down your brain cross-sectionally this way. So area 24, the cingulate cortex, it's called, is a relatively small part of the brain, but it does seem to have this particularly important role because it converges these functionally different aspects of the brain. And when people have looked down a microscope and done studies of that part of the brain, what you find is that it, it's smaller, probably, because it has fewer cells in it. Not just the, the nerve cells themselves, the neurons, which are the kind of the interesting cells in the brain. They do, the, they do the, the firing and the signaling. But the supporting cells, the glial cells, which are responsible for maintaining the, if you like, the environment of the brain and allowing nerves to communicate normally with each other and sort of uh, provide trophic support, growth support for the neurons. There seems to be fewer of them. And it may be that that's really why that part of the brain is not only just smaller, but can't function properly, because some of the wiring, the circuitry you need, just isn't there. Now, nobody knows why it isn't there. It's possible the genes may contribute to that. It's possible they used to be there, and then they've been lost. Or it's possible that people who develop bipolar disorder, they never, they never developed them for some developmental reason. But certainly, pathologically, this is a part of the brain where a lot of the attention has been centered. And just before I move back to the genes, there's a couple of other evidence that this part of the brain is not only structurally abnormal, but there are functional differences as well. So I've just got a couple of data slides to show you before I move back to the main part of the talk. So we, we've looked at this area in, in detail using various molecular techniques, again, which look at, look at expression of genes that may be important in how that part of the brain is functioning. And this is one example of a study where we looked at a protein called GAP43, growth-associated growth protein 43. And this is a protein whose level is a measure, really, of how of what this, this term I used earlier called plasticity, the extent to which the brain is, is remodeling or responding to environmental events around it. And if you measure how much protein there is in the cingulate cortex, and we did this in these four groups of subjects, and of course these are all people who'd had this illness in life, people, uh, control subjects with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or major depression, you can see that the subjects with bipolar disorder have the lowest level of this protein. And interesting, it was particularly down in those with a family history of the illness rather than patients with bipolar disorder without a family history. 
Now, you've got to be very careful in interpreting a single cross-sectional study of the amount of a protein to tell you about brain function. But there are other situations which suggest that that's a, it's a reasonable thing to do. And so it would suggest that perhaps this part of the brain in bipolar is slightly less responsive to its, its normal need to adapt to the environment and its changes. And then the final study to show, again, in the same part of the brain, we looked at a marker of how active the brain was in terms of, the, of, of a chemical transmitter called glutamate. And glutamate is a transmitter which activates the next nerve in a, in, a, in a series of connections. So it's a measure of how active the brain is. And here, the change was in the opposite direction. Here, the patients with bipolar disorder, now shown as individual dots, had a higher level of activity with this particular molecular marker of activity than did subjects, than did control subjects, or indeed than did subjects with schizophrenia. So this might suggest that the, this part of the brain in bipolar disorder, it's not that it's, le it's, not that it's um, less active, it's more active, but it's less adapting to the kind of activity it should have to what's going on in the environment, if you put together this increase with the decrease in the marker previously. Now, so these two studies on their own are very much just the tip of an iceberg, but I just wanted to give you a flavor of the kind of studies you can do to start getting at what might have been going on in the brains of people with bipolar disorder. The final point I'll make upon these kind of data is, though, is that these data really tell us about the trait of having bipolar disorder. Because in a study like this, which is done on people who've died, they died, some of them whilst they were manic, some of them whilst they had a normal mood, and some of them while they were depressed. And when you break out these data, it doesn't relate to how they were at the time they died. So these aren't markers probably of being manic or being depressed. If they're anything, they're markers of, of whatever the underlying vulnerability is in the brain that, that gives people the clinical presentation of bipolar disorder. Okay, so those are just some tasters of what's different, what appears to be different generally in the brain of people with bipolar disorder compared to controls. Now, I'm gonna come back to this slightly different question about how do the risk genes that are introduced earlier, how do they affect the brain? Okay. And one can do this in different ways. One can, is essentially asking the question, how do individuals who've got the risk form of each of the three genes I mentioned, how do they differ from individuals who don't have the risk form of the gene? They have, if you like, the healthy form of the gene. And you can measure that in terms of this evidence that it affects how the gene is expressed. You can then measure brain structure, like this sort of imaging studies I've shown you previously, or brain activity using the different kind of imaging I'll show you, or, if you like, brain performance. Does it actually matter in terms of how people think or behave? And the usual design people do for these experiments is obviously they take a, a large enough group of people in a number of subjects in each group to do robust experiments. But usually, and I think all the examples I'm going to show you come into this category, you don't actually study people with bipolar disorder because then you have the confounds of people being ill and often being on medication. So what you, in fact, do is you take healthy subjects and you genotype them to distinguish those who've got the risk form of the gene from the non-risk form of the gene, and then your comparison is between those two groups. Because these aren't causative genes, there are plenty of healthy people who have the risk form of the gene, just as there are plenty of people with bipolar disorder who have the healthy form of the gene. These are risk factors. I'll come back to, to that argument a bit later. But all the studies I'm going to show you are comparing something between people with and without the risk form of the gene. And I say I'm going to illustrate it with examples from the two, the two of, the, of the three genes I mentioned earlier. Well, the first, the first data just speak to this um, hypothesis that the risk form of the gene is working by changing how much of the gene is expressed, how much of the protein that the gene codes for is present in the brain. So in this instance, for the CACNA1C gene, we've divided people into those who've got two copies of the, if you like, the healthy form of this gene. These people in the middle have got one healthy form and one risk form, one from each parent, and these are the people who've got both versions of the risk form. And you can see that slightly but significantly, the people with the risk form of the gene are making more of this protein in the brain, particularly in the part of the brain I was talking about earlier on. So the hypothesis that the genetic variant has its effect by changing expression gene, how much of it is present in the brain, is supported by data like this. But you can still say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't interest me. That's of no concern to me. It doesn't make any difference for how that brain is functioning. So then people have gone to the imaging studies and, again, have taken people with and without the risk form of the CACNA1C gene. And these are examples of this technique where you can measure brain activity in a brain scan. It's called the bold response, and it's a measure really of how much the brain is active in different areas, and it's measured using the technique called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. Okay. And you put your groups of subjects in the scanner whilst you're measuring their bold response, and you get them to do something. 
and then afterwards you measure how much their brain had to turn itself on or off to get the job done. And then you see whether your two groups differed in how hard the brain worked to get the job done. So on the left is what the brain looks like when the subjects were being asked to encode and remember unpleasant pictures. It's so-called an emotional memory task. So people were shown unpleasant pictures and then essentially asked afterwards to remember had they seen this horrible picture before. And that lights up a part of the brain called the hippocampus and, and the amygdala to some extent as well. And what these people, what this group found is that people who had the risk form of this bipolar gene activated their hippocampus more. It was like as if their hippocampus cared more about unpleasant images than it did in people who had the other form of the gene. So if their brain was more sensitive, if you like, to those images. And then on the right-hand side is what happened when they got the subjects to do a completely different task. This was a working memory task. So this is, one, this is a task where you have to remember a number earlier that you've heard in a series of numbers. It's quite a difficult task because you're shown a series of numbers that happen quite quickly and you haven't got a, you, and then you've got to put on a pad which number you've just seen, but you've not got to tap the number that's at the screen at the moment. It's the number before the number before the one you're looking at. Okay, and it happens quite fast. If you imagine what that feels like when you're lying in a brain scanner, that's quite difficult. So it's quite a good task because it really challenges the part of your brain that's paying attention and having to remember and then act on the memory of what the number was the number before last. And it particularly affects this part of the brain at the front, the frontal lobes. And so what in this study they found, again, is that the two groups differed. And the group with the risk form of the, the, the bipolar disorder, risk form of the gene, had to work harder to get the job done. So they all managed, they only scanned the people when they had got the answer right. But in order to get the answer right, it was as if the risk form of the gene made your, meant your brain had to work harder to get it, as if your brain was more you know, working harder to get the job done. And uh, that's sometimes called the concept of inefficiency. It's as if your brain isn't quite wired up so well, so you can't do the task as easily. And it probably means that as the task gets harder and harder, people with this form of the gene will fail at the task earlier than people with the other form of the task will fail at it. So it's possible that this is sort of indexing some of the cognitive or memory problems which people at risk of or who have bipolar disorder suffer from. So that's, that, that's the same risk form of the gene affects expression of the gene, it affects the activity of the brain, it also seems to affect the structure of the brain. So now we're back to using, an, uh, using imaging to say how big is the brain, and it turns out that this, this variant of the, of, of the gene, again, affects how big the total brain is, and it's not just the whole brain. If you then say whereabouts, these areas in orange are the bits that vary in size between people according to whether they have or they don't have the risk form of the gene. So this is an example of a gene which puts people at risk of bipolar disorder statistically. And then when you test it, it turns out to affect brain structure and activity. Okay? If we then just turn now to the, the other gene, this I was going to talk about, the ANC3 gene, the story is much the same, but with some, if you like, some subtle differences. So the, again, the first kind of study says, does the variant in the gene affect how much ANC3 is being made? And this is a very complicated gene. I showed you a gene with four different bits of the gene that make protein, or exons, the one to th four blocks in blue. Here are, all the gene, here are all the exons in this gene. There's dozens of them. And that means there's all sorts of combinations of different proteins that this gene can make. And it turns out that the risk variant in this gene means that you make less, not more, like you did with the other gene. You make a bit less of some of these variants of the ANC3 protein. And there's some other evidence that suggests these different bits of the gene do different things. So losing this variant, of the, the, the protein encoding this part of the gene, will have a slightly different functional effect on your brain than had you lost this part of the gene, for example. Okay. So this is a slightly more complicated story than the Kaplan 1C one, but in principle it's still the same. It's saying you're making slightly different combinations of protein molecules, which are in some way potentially affecting how well your brain can, can work in terms of the tasks for which ANC3 is important. And then, again, if we go to imaging, there's evidence that ANC3, like the previous gene, again, affects brain activity during tasks. And these people used exactly the same working memory tasks, as, as I mentioned earlier, where you have to remember the number before last. And they found a very similar finding as the previous gene. It's not helped by the fact they've shown the brain in a different angle, so it's not as obvious as it should be. But essentially, exactly the same part of the brain on the outside of the frontal lobe, again, differs between people with and without the risk form of this gene. So two different genes of bipolar disorder both have the same effect on brain function. And I think that sort of convergence of finding, again, supports the interpretation 
that amongst other things, what these gene variants may be doing is affecting the brain's ability to process information and use information in this very important frontal lobe part of the brain. And then if, if you say, well, I'm still not interested, this is still brain science, what about performance, what about personality, what about behavior? Is there any evidence the genes affect that? And there is Frank three. So these, and I'm sorry, there isn't a good picture for this, this is just numbers, so I shall just explain what these numbers are showing. So here, they also showed that performance on this working memory task was different. It wasn't just the brain had to work harder to get it right. The brain, the people didn't get the answer right. They made more mistakes on these working memory tasks if they had the risk form of the gene than if they didn't. And the differences were quite, were quite, uh, uh, quite significant. I mean, they weren't, they weren't trivial differences. So for example, uh, they made, in one, in one version of the task, they made almost seven errors on the task rather than five and a half. Now, that's not enough to mean that you wouldn't function in life, but if, if on average you're performing these complicated working memory tasks 10 or 20% worse than other people do, that's not going to be good for you overall. One can imagine that as one becomes stressed or one as, makes the, as one makes the task more difficult, those differences could translate into functionally important differences in life. And then the final example I've shown you is that there were some differences in personality traits between people with and without the risk form of this gene. So for example, the, the people who had the risk form of the gene were rated as having, were slightly higher on reward dependence. They seemed to be slightly more um, susceptible to the effects of a reward or the promise of reward, which again in real life might affect people's you know, willingness or um, enthusiasm to undertake risky behaviors and the sorts of things that become awry when people develop, develop mania or depression. So these two genes illustrate that genes can affect the structure of the brain, they can affect the function and activity of the brain, and they can affect the performance of the brain, if you like, in terms of behavior or cognition. So just to summarize uh, this part of the talk, the risk forms of these two genes differ from the non-risk form in several ways. They alter how much the gene is expressed and exactly the details of that, how active the brain is in some tasks, how well some tasks are performed, how big certain parts of the brain are, and some of the behavioral traits that I mentioned. Now, I've emphasized these were not studies comparing people with and without illness. And so there's an extrapolation from the kinds of data and interpretation I've given you to what does that really tell us is it going on in bipolar disorder? And I think the, 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 the skeptical answer is we still don't know. But the assumption is that these are, the, the impairment in these kinds of cognitive and emotional processes probably underlies the vulnerability to bipolar disorder. And that then when you develop the illness, they get magnified, of course, by the symptoms and the mood changes that you get as part of the illness. All these people were being tested when their mood was normal. One imagines that these differences could well have been magnified if you were able to do it when people are either man uh, manic or depressed. Uh, and although I'm not talking about the other genes, the same sorts of principles that I've just given you for these two genes appear to apply to the other genes as well. Final thing to say is that the studies I've shown you are all in adults for a number of very good reasons. But there are other studies suggesting that many effects of these and other bipolar disorder genes may occur earlier in life. So for example, we know that genes express, I mentioned that a given gene can express more than one protein. The balance of proteins that a gene expresses are very different in, for example, a brain of a fetus, from a child, from a teenager, from an adult. And there's increasing evidence that some of the important genetic effects are actually occurring during those much earlier stages, long before the symptoms of illnesses develop. So by the time you're studying adults, you may well have missed a number of the important biological processes. So people are now increasingly trying to get their head around, how can we study these kind of questions and hypotheses much earlier in life if we want to test to what extent it's early events that are setting the scene for later bipolar disorder? And for example, stem cells, many would have heard of stem cells and the promise that stem cells can produce neurons in a dish which you can then study as they develop may be one way to get a handle on the possibility that these genes are having their effects very early in life. Okay, so I just want to finish with some slightly more general reflections about genes and the interpretation, the evidence and where the field is going to go from here. And this question which we often say and you often hear about or in the media, what does it actually mean to say X is a gene for bipolar disorder? What I haven't really made clear so far is that these genes are not causing anything. These genes are risk factors. As I've mentioned, you can have risk forms of the gene and stay well, and you can get ill without the risk forms of the gene. They're just risk factors. Just like smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer, you're not guaranteed you'll get lung cancer if you smoke, but you're a lot more likely if you do than if you don't. And the genes really can be thought of in the same way. 
but the genes aren't even very big risk factors. So the odds ratio for the genes I've talked to you is 1.2. Now, what that means is people with the risk form of the gene are only 20% more likely to get bipolar disorder than if they don't have the risk form of that gene. So they're not on themselves, on their own, major risk factors. And converse, as I've said, the risk forms of the gene are common in healthy people too. So we have to have a much more nuanced way of thinking about genes causing disease and simply thinking that if you've got this genetic abnormality, you will get the illness. It's not like conditions like, for example, Huntington's disease, where if you've got the abnormal gene, you will get Huntington's disease and nothing will stop that. These are much more subtle effects. And so perhaps the most important point of the whole talk is this one, that no gene or genetic abnormality is either necessary or sufficient to cause bipolar disorder. Genetics is not determinism. And that's both very reassuring in many ways, that we are not just the slaves to our genes, but it does also make it more difficult Then you then start saying, how can we use genetic information to predict illness or treatment response when it's not deterministic, it's just going to affect your probabilities of things happening. One thing that is a real puzzle at the moment, I mentioned earlier on that the heritability, the total genetic risk for bipolar disorder is about 85%, it's very big. Now, if you add up in various ways, how much the heritability can we explain with the genes that have been identified so far? It's a fraction of that. It's not even close to 85%. It might be 10% if we're lucky. It might well be less than that. So there's this puzzle called the missing heritability, and it doesn't just apply to bipolar disorder. It applies to many other complex and psychiatric disorders as well. We've got some genes, and that's fascinating, but they don't seem to be you know, finding the hidden treasure, if you like. And there's a number of explanations for that. One is that there are just many, many genes to be found, of which the three I've mentioned is just the tip of the iceberg. I, that would be deeply unsatisfying, I have to say, and also, I think, unlikely, because you would need so many genes to get close to the heritability. I think much more likely the second and third possibilities here. The first is that the genes don't just add up. They interact with each other. So if an individual has two or three risk form, forms of different genes, their risk isn't just A plus B plus C, it's A times B times C. And that's, that's a process called epistasis, and there's increasing evidence that matters. So these genes are not acting independently of each other, they're interacting with each other. And there's some evidence more from, I have to say, from schizophrenia than from bipolar disorder that that's happening. So in schizophrenia disorder, for example, schizophrenia, there's a pathway where there are three individual genes, each of which are a bit like CACNA1C or rank 3 and each of them on their own only has a tiny risk on schizophrenia. But if you're unlucky enough to have the risk forms of all three of those genes, then your risk of schizophrenia is 25-fold greater than it would be without them. So you start to get to much more interesting and predictive genetic results. The problem is most of the studies to date haven't really been designed in a way that allows you to explore gene-gene interactions. And so what I've told you is still largely an untested hypothesis rather than a certainty, but I, I suspect it will turn out to be important. And finally, and equally important, is that we tend to think about genes and environment as if they were two separate things. Of course, they're not. What genes really do is determine how we respond to the environment and the effects that environments have on us. So what a lot of the risk of genes for bipolar disorder are probably doing is exactly that. They're affecting how sensitive we are to stresses in life or to events or maybe to viral infections. Who knows? Because measuring the environment is actually much more difficult than measuring the genes. But there's, a lot of, there's increasing evidence that these so-called gene-environment interactions are important as well. Again, the data on that come more from schizophrenia than from bipolar disorder for various reasons. But for example, in schizophrenia, where it's been known for a long time that birth complications, difficult labors are a risk factor, it turns out that that's affected by the genes that the fetus has. So a given difficult birth doesn't affect all babies the same. It affects the ones with schizophrenia risk genes much worse and puts them at risk of schizophrenia. There's also some evidence that, for example, when teenagers smoke cannabis, although that overall increases their risk of schizophrenia later, that risk is dependent on the genes that they have. So some teenagers can smoke cannabis without increasing the risk of schizophrenia later. Other teenagers would do that and put themselves at considerable risk. So those are examples of gene-environment interactions, and I suspect the more we look for them, the more they too will turn out to be important in bipolar disorder. Finally, and coming back to my earlier slide about bipolar disorder not being a discrete condition, it really merges into a range of other conditions. Where people have looked, the genes for bipolar disorder turn out to also be genes for schizophrenia and vice versa. Not for every gene, but for the majority. 
And some of the genes for bipolar disorder may also be genes for unipolar depression, or what you like, common depression without the manic phases. And indeed, if you then go, so some of the genes for bipolar disorder are also schizophrenia genes. Some of the schizophrenia genes are then also autism genes, and some of the autism genes are also learning disability genes. And before you know it, the genetics is looking much broader than the idea that a gene is putting you at risk, particularly of bipolar disorder. I think we're moving towards a model where genes give us vulnerabilities to a range of disorders. And exactly which disorder a given person gets may be down to other genes they happen to have or the environments they happen to have experienced or just chance. Okay. So the idea that we have discrete disorders caused by discrete genes is really not tenable anymore. So let me just finish with a few more questions and I'll say the broader, broader issues that the genetic studies raise. There must be other genes. Even though there are interactions between genes with the environment may be important, we know there must be other genes and they remain to be identified and then the much more challenging task about how you do discover the relevant environmental factors upon which those genes are impacting. There's a possibility that some cases of bipolar disorder are caused in a very simple sense by a specific genetic abnormality. That's, I mean, it's possible, I think it's unlikely, but if there were such cases, although it's obviously very unfortunate for the individual concerned, they turn out to be really important for understanding diseases. So elsewhere in medicine, most conditions, even if they're common, have a very rare subgroup that are caused by a single gene. So for example, Alzheimer's disease, which is nearly always a complex disorder like bipolar disorder, there is a very, very rare familial form which is caused by a single gene, a mutation in a single gene. And discovering that gene and what was wrong with it gave clues to everybody else's Alzheimer's disease that have proved to be very informative. So if, if there are any such cases of bipolar disorder, then they could be very useful for giving clues as to where else to be looking in the brains and in the biology of people. Another question is, we, uh, not only are the genes not specific for bipolar disorder, an individual gene may not just code for all of bipolar disorder. Different genes may factor into different aspects of the illness. So it's possible that some genes are about instability of mood that give you the vulnerability of the mood to fluctuate in either direction, whereas other genes may be more about why you become mania or manic or why you develop depression or why you have a particular way of thinking or a particular personality. It's actually surprisingly difficult to answer that question at the moment, because the geneticists have simply gone about collecting people who met the criteria for bipolar disorder. When you're trying to collect a sample of thousands of people, as you have to do genetically, you take the minimum information required to put them into the study. The time it would take to go and exhaustively interview everybody in the study and their families to know enough about them, which is what you want to do, just doesn't happen. And now the geneticists begin saying, are beginning to say, give us even more money so we can go back to all our thousands of subjects and interview and do the study properly. Um, and to some extent, they're being successful in that plea for money. I mentioned that I've given you some hints about the, the ways in which these genes may be operating, but it's still largely unclear as to how, when, and where the genes exert their risk effects and which of the many effects that are discovered are really the important ones for explaining the risk of illness. And then finally, I mentioned if, if, if the majority of the genetic risk is shared with other disorders and to some extent with normal traits, what makes it bipolar disorder in an individual? And I think that's really one of the, the puzzling questions and clinically one of the most interesting ones. If you see people who look very different from each other and then you find they've got the same genetic vulnerability, that's really quite, quite uh, mysterious. Okay, let me just uh, finish the couple of slides. For example, what are the implications of all this? and this is probably the most disappointing bullet point of the whole talk, the answer is nothing yet. There are no new diagnostic tests of bipolar disorder, there's no change in how we classify it, and we certainly don't have any treatments to correct whatever the genetic abnormalities might be. And I hope from what I've said, you'll understand now why that's the case, because it's not as simple as finding a gross, discrete genetic abnormality, let alone one that was then correctable by a particular drug or other intervention. But that's not any, any reason, I think, to be uh, uh, downhearted or, or, or nihilistic about it. I think, first of all, th there is no alternative. I think genetics offer by far the best opportunity to understand bipolar disorder because so much of its basis is in our genes and thence to come up with treatments that in some way correct the genetic deficits. And again, if we look at schizophrenia, that, that process is already beginning to happen. I don't think individual genes at the moment look as if they're going to be sufficiently predictive or important in the overall biology of the illness to be useful. 
but the pathways that those genes regulate almost certainly will be. And again, from other disorders, that's beginning to look the case. These genes aren't randomly scattered throughout the genome functionally. It turns out that the genes, the risk genes often turn out to affect the same core biochemical pathways. And once you understand what those pathways are and where they converge, then if you go a bit further downstream where these different genes have begun to impact upon the same pathway, then interventions are much more likely to be effective because you're capturing the risk that all the different upstream genes are contributing to. Well, genetic testing, well, again, despite I'm saying I don't think at the moment it has any role in individuals, there are some situations which I think are not unreasonable to suggest will happen. The first is amongst those who we already know are at high risk, perhaps because they've got a strong family history. Again, in other disorders, it's looking as if then some of the genes that are risk genes but only mild risk genes in general become much more important in the context of a high-risk situation. So I think it's not impossible that within a few years, if you have a, 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 a patient who's come from a family with a lot of bipolar disorder, it might be then that some of the risk genes that we know now, we discover in the next few years, might be useful in predicting, is that person going to stay well or get ill if they're at risk of the illness? Secondly, it's possible, again, I'm thinking more of the um, uh, parallels from other disorders, that genetic tests might help tell us what's likely to happen. Not that the person's necessarily going to get ill or not, but if they do get ill, is it going to be a severe form of the illness? And, and, and related to that, what sort of drug that we have might people respond to better than other drugs? At the moment, I mentioned we have drugs like lithium and sodium valparate and carbamazepine, all of which can be used for mood stabilizers. It's very difficult, in fact, impossible to predict when you start which drug a given patient is going to respond to. And we know there are some patients who do very well with lithium, some do very well with valparate, some need the combination, and some don't respond to either. It would be much better if we knew that before we started, so you could pick the right drug on day one, not by trial and error. And there's beginning to be some so-called pharmacogenetic findings, which are suggesting they might give some clues as to which drug you should try first in, in different patients. But again, it's still very early days. Okay, let me, just, let me just wrap up and then I'll be happy to take any questions. The cause of bipolar disorder lies mainly in our genes. I think that's, I hope, convinced you of that. I don't think anybody doubts that. It's one of the few certainties. But no one gene is necessary or sufficient. They're just risk factors, cumulatively important, but individually at the moment they look trivial. But the genes, what they're doing together ultimately is affecting how we respond to the illness and setting our risk for illness. Okay, the genes are not deterministic. They make us more or less vulnerable to developing bipolar disorder. And what they're doing in terms of the biology is almost certainly, it's hard to think this, could, this isn't true in some respect. They're having their effect by modifying how the circuits in our brains develop and adapt in the way that brains have to throughout life. Your brain isn't a, a thing that grows and then stays the same for the rest of your life. It's forever changing. It has to, to respond to the environment and to the turnover of the connections and so on. And the, the genes are probably affecting how well or how badly we manage to do that. And I do think genetics will uh, almost certainly will help in the discovery of new treatments of bipolar disorder, and that will happen within, I hope, my, my clinical lifetime. But whether genetic testing in a, in a deterministic, predictive sense is happening, I think is very unlikely. And I think most of us would think that's, that's a good thing rather than a bad thing. And on that note, I'll leave it, and I'm happy to take any questions you have. Thank you.